Hello, and welcome to Sharing Air, uh, where we think that the extraordinary crisis of this moment calls upon all the resources, intellectual, experiential, and creative, of science, social science, medicine, the arts, and the humanities. I'm Laurieann Farrell, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University. I'm Andy Vasco, voted least likely to finish a pint of ice cream in one sitting by the Dairy Association of America. And I am also at CGU. I did it. That was a dare. (laughs) That was a dare. I love it. I've been noticing how much ice cream I'm eating in an individual sitting, and it's pathetic. It is really pathetic. Andy, you've eaten a pint and a half in two weeks. I mean, for Uh, me, a pint of ice cream. Two pints in three weeks. Two pints in three weeks. Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me for the math. I mean, okay, so to me, a pint of ice cream is one sitting, is it like a single serving? So I, I, you know, so anyway, that was an ironic thing. And I'm so glad that you're going to, I want you to actually think of it as an aspirational goal at this point. Um, I think that'll be my challenge this week. That it will be your challenge. And your other challenge will be give me a title that I can, that I can, that I can see if I'm daring enough to actually say on the air. It's nice to be back. We had a a really, really interesting, uh, just as always, we had a really interesting session last week um, and uh, where we went back to the past. We were, we were back in the 17th century and for amazing reasons, um, we found so many points of relevancy, but also so many points of strangeness, which is exactly what good historical research does for us. Um, and that's, I think, why we decided to call this week's um, podcast uh, Atmospheric Pressure. Because I think that one of the high spots of, of last week was um, this kind of amazing question, Andy, that you actually posed to our guest, Patricia Easton, um, who was talking to us about Rene Descartes and his, uh, his 17th century philosophies of mind, body, and soul. Um, soul part being particularly um, exciting for us because that's not the way people usually think about Descartes. But then you you came out of the blue and asked her this ex- this amazing question, which I, as a historian, would have never thought of asking. What did you ask her? What would Descartes say, and what would Dunn say if they saw an individual on a ventilator in an ICU? And then the next question was, what would they each say? Uh, regarding an experimental drug treatment that is decided based on a physician and not the person who none of the other treatments are working for. And the reason that works so well, I think, is that we were we were actually spinning out a, a sort of a pre-scientific in the way we know it now, pre-what uh, we might call successful medicine as we would know it now, Two different people in the 17th century in this time, pre-science, pre-medicine, by the way we would think modernly, um, how they would think about death, right? And we actually Mm -hmm. had very – we found more in common between those two than we would have ever thought possible. But death was a really – took us to a really interesting place because with Dunn – death is something that you expect. Death is something he anticipated, something he dressed up for practically – and so when Patricia Easton was talking about Descartes, she talked about his amazement and his thrill at seeing this kind of intervention, someone being breathed for on a ventilator, somebody, you know, that, that, that there would be someday a way to actually mend the body, which he saw as a machine, but maybe not in the cliched way we tend to think about Descartes. And the whole time we, I was thinking here about my, my, my favorite poet, John Donne, realizing that he he waits for the soul to de- he, the soul to depart the body. He expects that, 
And he would probably be horrified about any kind of attempt to prolong life after God has called the soul. Um, so that was, that was, that was an emo- that was a moment I couldn't I wouldn't have predicted what um, what Patricia would have said, um, but the way I've been thinking about it ever since, and you can interrupt me anytime, Andy. I'm just I'm just I love talking about 17th century, and this could you know we need to get off this soon. But one of the things I was thinking is I've had this this on my mind ever since, which is you know living with the certainty of death as opposed to living with the staving off of death or the saving us from death. Um, the death of the body, the death of this earthly existence. And um, I'd actually said as a challenge to think of that in, in find ways to think about that in comforting ways or hopeful ways um, that aren't explicitly religious. And I expect nobody took that challenge, but I tried to. And I, I thought a lot about um, the way, you know, Dunn orders death to be humble or death be not proud, you know, humble yourself because um, in, in many ways uh, you're no more interesting than sleep um, and in fact, you will actually, and someday yourself, be defeated because there is a better there is a, there is a better home for the soul than the than the earthly body. Um, and thinking about living with the certainty of death, I was I perhaps was drawn to certain kinds of news stories this week. And the news stories I've been drawn to are the news stories that are now inevitably taking us to what we might call a next phase, um, which is what kind of peace we're going to make with the, with the certainty of illness and potential death in the reopening of certain states, certain counties, the nation, um, almost as if there's now an explicit set of ideas that are on the table about what we may give up in doing so. Um, and so there's been, it's been, it's, it's taken the first moment of crisis in my mind to a place that I, it's a cliche and I hate it. It's to a new normal. Um, mm. And nobody's saying that we're not going to have more illness. But everybody is saying, okay, at this point, what do we do? Because there will be more illness that, that still allows us to return to some kind of life under a new normal. And part of that, I think, is making our peace with death. I mean, the metaphor I thought of a lot about this would be, you know, I go out to my car when I'm allowed to drive anywhere, when there's anywhere to go. Um, I started up knowing that there are horrendous statistics for um, for accidents and death in, in, in automobiles. I mean, the you know, the demographics are terrifying. And yet every day I go out of my house and get in a car and, and drive somewhere. Um, at some point, we make our peace. We make our peace with a certain new notion of risk. Um, I don't know if you've been picking up on those same stories. Yeah, well, I, I, I think between last week's conversation and even the conversation we're starting on today, one might describe that as morbid, but without <laughs> the, but but without the the value judgment of what morbid means. I mean, we have a taboo with discussions on death that probably weren't the same taboo where we could see the bifurcation take place between Dunn and Descartes, where in one sense, by believing that the, that the machine can be healed, that even conversations about death were like conversations about Voldemort, that, that we don't, we don't say it, we don't talk about it. And in some ways we've lost that capacity to have that in our mind at all as something that coexists. And we've even mentioned that it's this idea of, of encroachment Right? There's, there's a very particular boundary that we draw that says, no, don't, don't, no, we're not talking about that. And that has been uh, uh, encroached upon 
And now we're having to start to make comfort with things that maybe we weren't thinking about before. So when statistics have to meet individual stories, that is not something that's as easy for us to understand. I, I don't remember the quote, I don't know what Stalin or someone had said, you know, one person's death is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. That idea that we, it's out of our mind. You know, we just don't, we don't go there. Well, we're actually afraid of it. And we actually think it can be solved now. I do think this is a problem of modernity and of science that, that in some ways the great successes, you know, and, and the amazing accuracies of science and medicine have put us in a place where um, the, as the, the human aspect of the certainty of death is something that we are now allowed to to actually take from our minds. This would make us different than John Donne and Rene Descartes. Even he knows about that certainty, even as he, as he, you know, sort of aims towards those solutions. Um, and, and I think that that's actually, I mean, when you think about it now, in an age where we haven't got the answers for this yet, I and mean, this is, this is actually a time, you know, to think about the human I think, which is why we were drawn back to poetry, uh, why we, you know, there may be things that that literature and and philosophy and theology have to offer us as we grope towards the next solution to this problem of ending deaths of this particular sort or ending the illnesses of this or preventing them. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit um, maybe that's a little too optimistic or a little bit giving a little bit too much um a little bit too hard of a of a of a lift to humanities or poetry or literature or 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 music or um, theology or ethics, but I'm I'm just thinking um, this moment tests us in that way. I want to go back to that statement about the new normal because every newspaper tweet article it's all about what a new normal is, and and it's become a, a kind of uh, overused phrase and. Those ideas of what a new normal are, and I, and I like reading what people say, but they're they're tangibles and they're algorithmic. Like in this way, we will all be expected to stand X feet apart, and in this way, we will find that traffic will will recede, and in this way, we'll find. And they're they're all things that we could put something very specific to of what an experience will be like. But we're talking about a normal as uh, a, a kind of philosophical shift um, of proposing what that would be like mm. and how that would that would then. Uh, find its way into all of our media or find its way into everything else that we do as a filter that we, we place on top of everyday activity so that we don't just look at traffic, but we think of traffic now as another risk activity or that we don't just, we don't just look at leisure, but we think of leisure as something that we're more grateful for. And, and that philosophical piece, I think, is what's missing from how at least popularly we are, we're approaching what a new normal would look like. Uh, and we, we had talked about this idea of, of the phrase new normal as being kind of annoying. And it reminded me of a biological concept that, that we had mentioned. Uh, and in, in biology and physiology, there's this concept that you've probably heard of called homeostasis, that inside your body, everything's working really hard to make sure that you've got an internal body temperature of, you know, 98.6 or 7 degrees, that you've got uh, appropriate amount of movement in your GI system, that you've got uh, decent circulation, that you like everything is being kept within a set point. Uh, there was a term that came out from uh, who, there was a, an endocrinologist actually, but physiologist, 
named Bruce McEwen at the Rockefeller uh, University. And he had coined this term allostasis, which literally means having to find a set point in response to other. And I feel that that's actually what we're doing, is we're in a moment of allostasis in a social component right now, in a social way, rather than just calling it a new normal. Because normal means that normal. it stays that way. Right. Yeah. We're scrambling well, it for means a, we're for finding normal. what works. Right. We're finding what works and it'll change again. That's, yeah. that's what it means. So, but I want to get back to, I mean, I want to, can I ask you about this, this concept of risk? Um, yes. While we try to, well, okay. So using allostasis, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a word I, I should be using more often um, instead of saying new normal, which is ridiculous. But um, you, so you said we, we think about risk when we go out now, or maybe that'll be the, the thing that we add in to make us allostatic. Um, I suspect you don't use that term that way, but to get to allostasis, and if part of that is the it, part of that condition is um, thinking of the risk all the time, that feels inhuman to me, because the risk that we run every day when we wake up is that we'll be dead by the end of the day. I mean, I hate. I mean, you, this is a this is kind of mortality and morbidity, isn't it? Um, I mean, no human being is guaranteed to get out of here alive. So a lot of what makes us human is our capacity to think beyond that, to think past that, to think over and around it, to solve it when we can, to ignore it if we can't, because otherwise one of the options would be a kind of despair. So wondering about risk-taking applied to, say, social interaction or to um, – I mean, that seems to me a, a hard thing to ask of people even in the – in the scramble to find an allostatic place post-COVID? I think that in terms of allostasis, it's not as intentional as one might imagine. Uh, it, there, are, there are things that we can do socially to make it more intentional, but by and large, it's trial and error, like anything in evolution. It's like, let's see if this works. No, that didn't work. Okay, this worked a little bit. Let's try a little bit more of that. And I, I think it's going to happen without us thinking about it that one day, like maybe in, in an early modern sense, they were in a time of plague and war and pestilence and everything else that was that was making life difficult. So there was a philosophy that evolved Dunian, you know, style that, that said, you know, I got to be ready for this or, you know, the samurai style of, of every day might be your last, mm-hmm. which doesn't become from our perspective where we subjectively think that it's terrible we might value life differently. We might approach life differently with more gratitude, just very generally. So I don't think it has a directionality to it yet. I think we have, we have fear right now. And granted, I'm the worst with the fear, just for the record. I cannot be speaking about this as, as if I can only intellectualize it. Uh, But I do believe that there's going to be a moment where we will have different philosophies around this. It'd be wonderful because I actually think people would read more John Donne, and that would be a glorious thing. Um, there'd be a whole new there'd be a whole new place for the Renaissance in the way we think about things, and and also the medieval. Um, but one of the things you're talking about, we'll, we'll, one day we'll just kind of we'll, we'll be there. We'll be in the place that we expect to be, or we'll be in the place that we are because all these small incremental steps have taken us to this place where seem we, we, we've met our, our allostatic moment. These are just things now we have, like, like I would say that we've actually achieved allostasis at the airport when we used to be able to fly. There's a whole new one That's waiting right. for us. But, you know, That's who right. would think that we would start making sure we had slip-off shoes just to go flying? Um, and, um, 
And that now is something we do almost unthinkingly. And we don't probably sit and think about the risk of being blown up by a terrorist bomb in quite the same way. But, but that's right. So we, so we wake up, we're in a different world. And yet that raises a question about how other things creep up on us, the slower forms of crisis that we know about, but push away because it would to actually address them would make everyday life or the economy difficult. Those are the problems that we were admired in before, uh, before they took one particular um, form uh, in the COVID crisis. The COVID crisis basically, in some sense, illuminates for us a number of other great and quite terrifying weaknesses in our social system, and and more importantly in our in our environment. Um, that's a whole another aspect of thinking about encroachment, how we're living on land, how we're living uh, next to um, other creatures besides ourselves, how we live with a virus, which is a version of a creature. Um, and it feels to me like this is the time when we get to introduce our guest. Yeah, I think it's it's more than time to introduce our guest. Uh, I am excited to be introducing professor in the Department of Politics and Government and co-chair uh, in the Department of Politics and Government for the Field Chair in Public Policy, Heather Campbell, to Sharing Air today. Hi, Heather. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, we have questions for you. Um, but but um, and, and we, you know, I, I feel like it must have been, uh, in some ways, uh, painful for you to listen to us talk and not get to, to talk about poetry. One of the things that I know about Heather is that she has a good deal of poetry at her fingertips and a, and a great sense of, of early modern literature just because she loves it. And that's the my favorite kind of people on earth. But I would like to start with a really, because I this is a question I've been wanting to ask you for a while, Heather, and we spend time outside of work actually getting to know each other. But Pardon me if this actually sounds um, a little dumb, but I, I honestly need to know. I mean, we use the word policy all the time, right? I mean, I use it constantly to explain to students why we're not doing this or why we're doing that. I've been using it excessively in the last five weeks, behind, you know, using it, hiding behind it for every kind of decision that I'm trying to present. Um, mm. But I realize that I, I don't really have a, a working definition of it, or a professional, the way you would think about it, given that this is actually what you do for a living. You, you think about, you write about, um, and you work on. So th forgive me for starting at such a basic level, but what is policy or are policies exactly? I mean, how are they made? I mean, who gets to make these and who, you know, with whom do policymakers confer? Do they talk to you and your, and, and, and do you make policy? Um, or are you a, a trusted advisor or do you do all those things? <laughs> well, that was a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, I'll say that's not a stupid question. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting for me as a policy analyst is that for most of my life, whenever I tell anyone that's what I am, they always say, that's interesting. And then there's kind of this long pause. And then they say, what is that? <laughs> so, so, and in addition, every policy text always starts with a definition of, so what do we mean by policy anyway? Oh, phew. So one thing we should specify here is that when we talk about policy in this way, as opposed to the way that you're talking about it in the university, we're talking about really public policy. It's just the American way to kind of drop off everything and make everything short, right? So we're talking about public policy, and public policy um, is created by government. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, what your mind might immediately fly to, because in a system like the United States, we have 
this highly federalized system with literally thousands of governments in the United States that cities, counties, states, federal, special districts, and so on. In addition, there are different branches of government, right? The presidential or executive, the administrative, the courts. And so within all of those structures, um, policy can be made. The other thing is that kind of sounds like we're going to define it to mean everything that we're interested in is that (laughs) (laughs) poetry is policy. (laughs) No, but having a national poet laureate is policy. Ah. (laughs) Is that we it's it generally policy is thought to public policy is thought to include not only what governments choose to do, but what they explicitly choose not to do. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, in the United States, we explicitly choose not to regulate almost all religious expression. And so that itself is a policy. So it doesn't have to be an explicit thing like saying you can't drive more than you know X miles per hour on the freeway. But it can also be something explicit like we shall not regulate or, or intervene in this particular domain. Oh. Thank you. And also, thank you for saying that wasn't a dumb question. Um, yeah, and I, and I, that was and really I, thorough. Yeah. And I Good. like the ocean. It's about not just what we explicitly do, but it's about what we explicitly don't do or not, you know, it's, and that's, that's extremely helpful. I think, especially in what the way we're thinking about our situation right now. That's right. Can we take a look at that in, in different levels, Heather? So you said we have a very federalist meaning so that it's going toward a national government, but trying to organize with all these other governments at a state and city and other kind of organizations municipally. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of conflicts now in this, given the, the, the pandemic that we're living through. Uh, we, we see Governor Newsom describing California as a nation state. Um, <laughs> we have... I, th- I think in California, there were a couple counties where certain businesses opened up and there was no enforcement, even though it was against the, the state order. And so now the, the, the state is, is making them lose their license to serve food or the threat of that coming back. Uh, and then, of course, there's the national uh, state kind of conflicts. Has this happened in the past without there being a civil war? Is this, this is a normal kind of push and pull between the different levels of government and the policies that are not coherent with each other? And what do we have that normally keeps them in a healthy, ready for it, stasis with each Ooh, other? Um, very good. So that there, there isn't a movement too hard in any one direction to cause a, a lack of or a crumbling of foundation. So we do have, the American system is very loosely organized. So part of what saying that it's federalist means is that it's not centralized. Okay. So a lot of governmental, I mean, either even other industrialized liberal states still, I mean, and I mean liberal in the sense of like you have civil liberties and that kind of thing, um, <laughs> still can be very can be very centralized in terms of the way that um, rulings come down or the way that policy is made and then distributed down to lower levels. In the American system, it's really quite common to have disagreement between the states and so much so that we even have a term, the laboratory of the states, which is this idea that the states may do their own things and that this is seen as a good thing because we can try to use that difference to figure out which of their own things turned out to be a better thing. Um, It's also important to realize it's very, I think it can be hard to remember even if you're American and I've 
found that trying to explain this to people who are not American is really difficult, is how extraordinarily diverse our society is uh, compared to many other societies. Even just thinking in terms of differences between the states. Um, I was talking to my to a couple of students the other day, and they said that Montana didn't have any or only had just a very small handful of air quality monitors, whereas California had lots. And so that showed California was a better state. And I said, well, Montana has 500,000 people in the whole Mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. So they don't really need a whole lot of air quality monitors. We have, you know, so, um, so it is important to keep track of the fact that our system is actually designed to be more resilient in the sense that it can allow for this different behavior at different levels that are supposed to be responsive to the local situation. That's encouraging. That's good to know. Yeah, and Heather, as a, as a as a policy analyst, are you are have you been making comparisons between varieties of policy in this in this most recent crisis? Uh, I have somewhat. I can't say that I've been as plugged into this because, as I'm sure you understand, I've been sort of desperately trying to keep my classes going while (laughs) switching to online and and all this other stuff, supporting the students. Yeah, oh, that. But yes, I have, I've been, I've been very interested and I think we will, there will be a lot of analysis that will occur afterwards to try to figure out which of these solutions might have been more better, uh, more successful in terms of the various goals that we might have had with the different kinds of responses that have been at different states. It's also interesting, I do have a friend and co-author named Yushim Kim who has studied MERS, uh, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and SARS, which I actually forget what the SA part stands for now, but that's also respiratory. Severe acute respiratory. Okay, severe respiratory syndrome and H1N1 pandemics in the past. and so she's done some direct comparison between what they were doing in South Korea, which seems to have worked much more successfully than what we've done in the United States. And that's another thing. The fact that we have this federalized system can mean that we let people fly about in an uncoordinated manner. And in this kind of a situation, even though we still want to allow for sort of the resilience of local response, we also need coordination, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the lessons we've learned is that there's been insufficient coordination for this type of a problem. Mm. There's, There's an additional piece here, Heather, too, where I know you have some expertise in urban I know you're teaching a course on, on cities and for transdisciplinary studies, but you also have this interest and expertise in in urban policy. And mm-hmm. we have an environmental policy. And we mm-hmm. and we have a very differently uh, organized system and set of conditions for people dealing with a pandemic in a, a dense city versus, let's say, Montana, where the total population is 500,000. What are we learning as we're going through this about the the types of policy that are appropriate for each? And is the federalist system really the best way to allow, I mean, we hear granular, we're, we're allowing this to be granular, comes out of uh, Burks and, and, and the, uh, the, the task force. Uh, is, that, is that the system that you see working best for this kind of difference in population and the way that this spreads? 
I think that question becomes harder to answer because of the massive travel integration that we also have. So in a world where people weren't traveling readily and fluidly like they are in the United States, then that would make it more sensible to allow this to be done at a local and more granular level. But once you have the kind of astounding fluidity of movement that we have, then that's one of the reasons why I would say that it becomes necessary that there be some type of integration with, again, you know, it's, it can be hard to design a structure like that, right? But some kind of integration that allows there to be rules that apply to all, but that also are flexible enough for the rules to be somewhat different. I mean, one of the counties in um, California that refused to obey the rules is this really northern county where, again, there's very few people living there. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it it's not altogether clear that their decision was wrong. I mean, it was it was in violation of the governor's order, yes. And as a general you know, as a general principle, I believe in the rule of law. But, um, but of course, that's a very unusual type of order. And it's not clear that what they did was harmful, because it's not clear that there were people traveling in and out of there, or that there were enough people with enough density to increase the likelihood that there would be severe spread. So that is one of the things we've learned. In my urban class, we spend a lot of time thinking about density because that turns out to be kind of key to what we mean by urban or to a city. It really has to do with density. And it seems clear that the the more density in a city, the more problematic this has been. And that, of course, harks back to the history of cities. I mean, that would be something that Lorianne and Patricia would both know about and that it used to be that cities were just kind of cesspools of disease. Um, and it's unlike now con- where they're, they're clean and airy and bright. Um, <laughs> well, they're I'm so vastly, glad we're not like that past anymore. They're vastly better in every way. They there are. Is not reform raw sewage reform has actually touched the city. Yes. The cities are, are, and actually before this happened, it used to be like say a hundred years ago that if you were male and you lived in New York city, your life expectancy was lower than the rest of the country. But now, before COVID, if you lived in New York City and you were a male, your life expectancy was longer than is on average than the rest of the country. Because is that cities because of actually, concentration of wealth? Well, there's certainly that, but there's a lot of concentration of poverty in cities too. You know, right. we have to remember that. It's really to a significant to an astonishing degree, it's the triumph of engineering, of getting clean water into the city and dirty water out of the city. <laughs> And um, and maintaining social structures that that keep that working successfully. It sounds though. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want um, to to spin out something you didn't say. But if people in the city are 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 on the whole more healthy until 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 this COVID crisis, because they've kept they've been able to get the clean water in and send the dirty water out. Um, is that a pol- is that basically an urban versus rural policy all the way around? I mean, where does all the dirty water go? Where does all the stuff that that cities are able to kind of band together, engineer out of their midst, are they ending up in these other places where people don't live as long? Well, that's always a tough question. That so no creature can live on this planet without creating pollution, and humans create pollution at a higher rate than other animals. Um, and obviously more so when we're 
when we're clustered together, then it's at least not necessarily a higher rate, but it's higher concentration. Um, but some of this pollution isn't necessarily just like spewed forth elsewhere. It depends on what's happening. It can be that it's actually like we take the dirty water and we actually filter it and clean it. And then we can take the the impurities that were in there and put it somewhere where there aren't people. So it isn't harming people, including deep in the ocean. Sometimes that's where we put it. And of course, you know, and speaking of morbid things, it's also perhaps kind of gross to think that all the fish and, and whales and things are excreting into the ocean. <laughs> so <laughs> all well, the time. Might as well, given that we're, we're, we're willing to mess it up as well. I mean, that's a different kind of encroachment, isn't it? I mean, we do have to put it somewhere. And yes, and I know that you work on environmental policy. And one of the things I think about is that, but we do actually, there are people that live closer to these, these nasty areas than others. And these often are people who don't have, are not people of means. Yeah. So that's actually one of the things I have found to be quite interesting, but in a bad way, but nonetheless interesting um, about the, the whole COVID crisis is, so my primary area of research is on environmental justice. And environmental justice is the <laughs> somewhat uh, backwards name for the study of the fact that in the United States, there's severe environmental injustice mm. based on race and ethnicity primarily and also poverty. But though people are always surprised, poverty is actually second to race and ethnicity, not first. Mm. Oh, I'm surprised. Um, yes. And That's this amazing. Is, yeah, it's generally quite surprising to people. Um but that is what the research shows over and over and over again. Not that poverty doesn't have an impact, but that race and ethnicity have a bigger impact. Um, and so one of the things that we're seeing, and you may be aware of this, that is that um, racial and ethnic minorities are dying from COVID at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this does depend on where you are. But in Chicago, the statistics that I've seen say that 30% of the people in the city of Chicago are African-American, but 70% of the people in the city of Chicago who are dying from the disease are African-American. So this is a horrendous um, mismatch, right? Yes. And and what we're seeing and so there've been there's been a lot of conversation going on um in in the policy community at any rate as to why this is occurring. And there seem to be a variety of reasons. One certainly has to do with the fact that there are underlying health disparities that already exist for racial and ethnic minorities. So in general, um racial and ethnic minorities have more obesity, more diabetes, more hypertension, more asthma. So diseases that seem to be associated with um with being more susceptible to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. But but then you might start asking yourself, well why is that? Right. And one of the things is because there is this, in fact, this discriminatory, these discriminatory structures built into the actual systems of the cities, not necessarily intentionally. I mean, in some cases, it might have been intentional at some point in time. But at this point, they're, 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 in, they're like woven into the actual fabric of the city itself in a way that is extremely difficult to disaggregate, such that racial and ethnic minorities are exposed to a number of pollutants at much higher rates, including even air pollution, um, which is kind of surprising, you might think, because air, air moves around, right? But right, there we have been numerous it. studies. Yeah, we share it. It moves around. But you know what? The air you and I share is nicer than the air a lot of other people share. <laughs> yeah, um, that doesn't surprise me. If you think about certain, if you think about neighborhoods even, or, or like proximity to manufacturing or something. 
That's right. And there's also one of the things, again, that we don't necessarily like to think about, but and it's somewhat less true in the U.S., but it's still true for us, and it's true literally a thousandfold in other places, is that the land that we live upon has been used over and over and over again, and it's often filled with layers of pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but interestingly, where so racial and ethnic minorities end up living where there's worse air, worse land, worse water, uh, more toxics release inventory facilities, and a toxics release inventory facility is a facility in the United States that is emits known toxins at levels high enough that they're required to report it by the Environmental Protection Agency. Note, note how many sort of complicated notions there are in there. We know these things are toxic. We know they're emitting them. And what they have to do is tell us. It sounds like we've, we're talking about racial and ethnic minorities as a canary in a mine shaft almost, as if these are all, if we think about sort of a worsening environmental crisis that will affect us all, they're just, it would sound like these people have a front row seat to the disaster right now. Well, and that's been true in other cases too. I mean, if you look at, if so many scientists argue that we're seeing a worsening extremeness of weather, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it is a little unfortunate that in the early days, people just started talking about global warming because it turned out that that really wasn't quite, quite accurate. Yes, there's average warming, but mostly what part of what's going on really is higher variability. So things are more extreme than they used to be. Mm. And so we've seen these extreme weather events too, which often disproportionately affect minorities. But as you say, to the extent that these are going to continue and even worsen, then it will eventually reach people who are not minorities. Um, And that's, so, you know, you said that about the canary in the coal mine. One of the things I think is, I, I hope we will think about COVID as kind of a stress test for our economy and the policies that we've made and whether and see where we can now see that there are weaknesses that maybe weren't clear before. One of you, I think maybe Andy said something about this could illuminate things in a different way. You know, it's like you shine the light to the side instead of straight on, then you see something different. Mm-hmm. And for example, the fact that poor children primarily get food from school. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so. Right. Right. So now that's been revealed to be a real problem, right? Yeah. Because if you have to send all the children home, right, then how do they get their food? And of course, and then that should make us think, well, what about summer? What about weekends? Um, you know, if poor children primarily get their food from school, then what that means is when they're not in school, they're not getting that food. Right. And, and why are we still that on seems a- like I was just going to say, why are I'm we still sorry. on an agricultural schedule for school altogether? Well, there's that too, of course. Right. So um, we don't think about year-round school, but we don't think about it as a way to make sure that people get fed. Right. But that seems like a stupid idea when you think about it. Children, children should have food whether they're in school or they aren't in school. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of idea that sneaks up on you, right? I think that we are also facing the fact that the kinds of jobs that have kept this country going for the last five weeks are underpaid jobs without health insurance, where the same households whose children need school in order to eat. We haven't even gotten to what we might call you know, the goal of education. Right. 
We know there's these huge links between eating and education, which is one reason they started feeding kids in school, because they figured out that the kids couldn't learn if they didn't have a good breakfast or they didn't have lunch. But then we, we we didn't think back to what this means about the rest of the time. And yeah, and we've got other things too, like you said. I mean, the and certainly there are people who've thought of this before, but it may make it more clear to people that tying your health care to your job is probably really not the best way to do that if you want people to have health care. Not with today's record, but we just came out today in terms of unemployment. Exactly. I mean, we're seeing unemployment rates that we've never seen since right. the Great Depression. And... And it's interesting to me, you guys were talking earlier about this idea of like a philosophical shift. And one of the things that we did see come out of the Great Depression was a a series of philosophical shifts in America. So that if you think about, if you think about societies as kind of moving along some kind of a linear, semi-linear path, every now and then you get kind of a step function, a discontinuity where there's actually like a big difference. It's not just moving along roughly however it's going. And that happened after the Great Depression. And my sense of that is because when you have 25% of the population unemployed, which is what uh, 25% of the male population during the Great Depression was unemployed, what that showed was that it wasn't your fault. You don't suddenly have 25% of the population unemployed because they're suddenly all lazy 'er ne'er-do-wells who want to live off the state. Anyway, there wasn't a state to live off at that point. So it showed people that there was something about that it it wasn't there. There were systemic things that it had to do with the system, with a system failure, not with the individual person's failure. Do you think that model is applicable still? That that way of looking at uh, something that is is a is a real challenge or a stressor, and and a social response to that being a change in attitude. Do you have a sense that we're going to do something similarly in a post-COVID world or a new normal or whatever the term that we're going to use to describe it? Or do you think it might be a different set of circumstances that, that could really change how, how we move forward? I, I guess what I would say is that I hope that it will actually change, cause a change, a sea change, right, into the way that we think about some of these social factors. I don't know that it will. But I what would do. it take? What would it take? Well, I mean, I'm thinking now. I'm, I'm thinking also about our notion of allostasis, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this is this is you know we're being wrenched into a new reality, and we could argue that either what you're arguing for is to to not to not find that as a as a as a normality, but to actually keep pressing. I mean, not just go, "Hew, we're done with that." Here we are, but to go beyond it and and and. When you started, I mean, I think the very way you said the word hope sounded slightly doubtful. And I'm trying to think about what it would take. So we have the crisis, we have the situation, we have the data, we have an understanding that I think would be difficult to dispute that all the people that are out of work currently um, are are out of work because it's their own fault. <laughs> and so I'm I'm curious as a person who analyzes what would it take? What does it take? beyond the crisis to get to get the to policymakers into line in this way or to respond in ways that might be creative and 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 and, and unprecedented well i don't know i mean i wish Aww. i knew the part of the issue is there's been a 
a continuing movement um, in, in policy and evaluation and other sort of related disciplines of what's called evidence-based policymaking. The idea that policy should be made based on evidence of what works and what doesn't work. Now, that you might be thinking to yourself, well, how else? <laughs> but, but no, that isn't really how policy has traditionally been made. Um, and so part of it is there are a lot of scholars out there of, you know, health policy scholars, environmental scholars, scholars, race scholars, et cetera, who are trying to take this and think hard about what it means that we should be doing differently. But, but one of the reasons I guess that I do sound a little bit doubtful is because I also feel, and I suppose this is just part of Amer American society, but we seem to be at a period where there's these very strong push-pull forces that are quite contrary. So that we have a lot of strong force in certain regards to trying to have evidence-based policy and use evidence in science, of which we now have quite a good amount that we didn't used to. But then we have a lot of other people who clearly are rejecting the use of evidence and uh, data and science. And, and indeed, there have been, I've seen terrible studies. I, I went to a conference for the Society for Risk Analysis, and I saw this, I went to this panel that is just kind of seared into my mind that showed that under certain conditions, um, if people knew that scientists that like say 97% of scientists who are experts in a certain area believed something that actually made them less likely to believe it. Why? I mean, I am as horrified as you, although it feels like the, you know, lots of recent events. And I mean, you know, more, you know, less recent than exactly right now mm -hmm. made, wouldn't, you know, makes me, made me anticipate what you were going to say. Um, I'm I'm curious, and this is this is this is not a fair question, but I'm just curious. Why is that? Is it that we at that is it that people think of scientists as a version of you know people in the ivory tower, pointy-headed, you know, don't understand the actual humans about whom they're speaking, or or are they they see them as cut off from society, or do they just find them you know impossibly remote? I don't honestly think that's what it is. I think that I, I kind of hate to say this, especially because I think it's then very hard to solve if this really is the reason. But I actually think that people have been being told for so long now, for so many decades, that everybody acts in their own self-interest, that they it's just that they think that scientists are just like anyone else. They're just acting in their own self-interest. And they say something because they think it will advance their careers. And they don't actually care whether it's true or whether the evidence supports it or not. That's and sad. That's sad. It, it is sad, but that's also something where we might have an opportunity here to see a philosophical change that could bring about something like a new deal or whatever, whatever people are responding to at a much more social level than an individual. And because we're seeing compassion, we're seeing, you know, everyday people honking their horns as, as they watch healthcare workers going to the hospitals in New York or around the, the more dense areas in, in Los Angeles, or that, that you see uh, people giving money to causes that they never had before. I mean, as you said, there's there's two very different points of view on this. Uh and we're we're always we're always kind of in conflict about what's about what dictates policy that and this also resonates well with what we're seeing in the media right now of the future could look this way or it could look this way. And it's giving two very polar opposite scenarios. And there's 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 a lot of push pull in there. Mm -hmm. Uh 
and and hopefully that we could we could get to a place of, of maybe losing a little bit of that uh the, is it is it called the the rational self actor that you're you're doing things for yourself but not that that doesn't oh, exist but that's not the only thing it's actually called rational man Oh, right. <laughs> that's what it's well, actually called. For that's sure. a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a whole nother conversation. We'll see you next week, Heather. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's discuss but that. There is. Let me do just say one other thing, though, that is a little bit hopeful, just to interrupt because it made me think of it right then. I will say that the, the data seem to indicate that the groups who are opposed to science and evidence and, and, and that are, are they are in the minority at the moment. However, they're they're also very powerful. So they're a very powerful minority. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's another thing that on the one hand, you might feel more hopeful because it's a minority, but on the other hand, you might feel less hopeful because it's a powerful minority. And powerful minorities can actually, you know, even in um, powerful minorities have always been able in many ways to push policy, not only because they have they have the the capacity to to simply enact things. And that's a gross simplification for which I apologize. But a powerful minority can actually vote a person into office. That's the, you know, that's the kind of math that has always, you know, has always just astonished me. Um, A mobilized single single thought sort of obsessed or or singularly focused minority can do a lot of work in this world and it can be either for good or for ill, or it, you know, it, it just is always, I think that's one of the things that it's hard to persuade people that majorities don't always win the day. Can we put this in a global context? Because in some ways, this is making me think of how the United States has been, certainly by, by population, we're a minority. Uh, a lot of what we do has a lot of power to it in affecting the world. And it seems like uh, we have gotten comfortable with that here, and we're starting to see that we don't have that same that same power that we did before. And it and it's looking worse every day that we've got uh, our our country trying to deal with this pandemic from maybe a, a foreign journalism perspective. Uh, what do you think the the future of that minority power status is going to look like between the United States and? The rest of the world, if we're, if we're fractioning up more than we used to, Heather, or if this is something that's just a normal waxing and waning. Well, I should, I should start by doing the thing academics always do and say that's not my field. <laughs> <laughs> I Which don't care. Oh, come yeah. on, you should see the things that Andy and I talk about. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but but I do. I want to say some things that. Um, I mean, I've certainly given this some thought. I I believe that. You know, I mean, the United States has not always been in this power position, right? But in the post-World War II era, mm-hmm. that's when we've been in this high power position. And there are, I believe there have been at least a couple of reasons for that. One reason, of course, is institutional. So, for example, we set up the UN so that we're one of the members of the Security Council. It helps. Um, yeah. And then, in addition, we were able to uh, have the dollar created as the kind of the world currency, Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually turns out to be very important in a variety of ways. Um, so there, so there are these there are these institutional factors. But I also think that part of it was that the United States, which clearly has many flaws as a country and clearly does not live up to its own standards of its own self to the extent that I certainly wish it did, nonetheless 
really has really had tried seriously for a long time to do things that were good for the world order not just only selfish things. And I'm not saying we didn't do selfish things because we certainly did, but we did things that were helpful for the world order. We really believed that open trade was uh, would help lift other nations up. And we, we took that seriously and we got rid of tariffs and we did open trade and it did indeed lift a lot of countries up. Um, and there've been other things like that where the United States has, I think has managed to maintain a high ground because it took the high ground, if you will allow me to kind of make a slight pun. But I don't think that we're, we're not doing that right now. And indeed, we're damaging some of the institutional structures that we helped build that also helped us remain in this position. And also, we now have clearly a very different um competitor. So I don't know if you all remember, but in the, I think it was the eighties, it might've been the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. There were a lot of people who thought Japan was going to uh-huh, take over that. and the U S was going to, you know, that we were doomed and Japan was going to eat our lunch. And <laughs> I remember actually doing some research into this and I thought, well, you know, that's not going to happen because they're just too little. They just can't do it because they're just too little, but that is not true of China. China is vastly bigger than we are. And um, they are choosing to do different things than we're doing. And they clearly, I believe, increasingly see themselves as a direct global competitor of ours. So I do think that we're in a much more vulnerable position than we've been for a long time because, because we're behaving badly. So that would be a start. And then there's also someone else who would like to be the hegemon instead of us. You know, it's it's like they say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. I mean, you could actually look at the history of Great Britain in the same way, right? It sounds it's it sounds uncannily alike in many ways. And one of the things that we're seeing in 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 Britain's current history is that last gasp of we used to be great and we're not going to behave well about it. You know, and that and that would be one definition of the Brexit crisis. But one of the things that I find most poignant is that up until that point, and in and, and up until really a very recent and populist moment in British politics, there was an idea that they had to cede place, basically because of size and because being first in on industrial revolution means that you're the first out when 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 people can actually exploit larger land masses um, and and work differently to actually surpass you, then for a long time, Britain continued to see itself as still providing what we might call the intellectual capital for the Western world, for um, a, a standard of ed- a standard of what we might call educated and literate learning, and also of a certain standard of politics and political engagement. And they've kind of given that up now, but that's when you see that, that it's, it goes hand in hand that you give, you lose your, your empire um, or you begin to lose your empire and you have some choices to make, um, how tempting it is to become angry about losing an empire and then behave very badly, uh, churlishly, and um, in and um, like a child whose favorite toy has been taken away or has been told they're not the, the, the smartest kid in, in class. And I see even really quite responsible journalists playing on this a little bit. I mean, to mor- this morning I got up to an op-ed piece um, uh, by in the New York times that said people in Denmark are laughing at us. Hmm. 
right? And that's how you taunt people in the schoolyard if they're not as powerful as they thought they were. That's how you bring down a bully. And we're supposed to read that and go, oh, I mean, this feels to me like a tailor-made kind of thing for a, for a, a reader of the New York Times as I am. But part of me wondered about that whole attitude, that the very fact that what's supposed to worry me about the behavior of my country right now is that Denmark is laughing at us. It's not exactly, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a reason to be concerned about the way we're behaving in the world that goes well beyond, you know, some other, some other nation, you know, thinking that we're, that we're losing, right? I mean, it, that just okay. sort of piles up a notion of losing and winning, which has been too much the kind of tropes of our day up until this moment when we lost out to COVID. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's also interesting though. I mean, it can't, it, it, you don't want to discount the U S one of the things we have shown is that we are a very resilient society. Um, you know, we'll see what happens and we clearly haven't handled this as well as we could have, or as well as some other countries, but we also haven't handled it as terribly as we could have, or as badly oh, as some other countries. <laughs> and it is so. harder to get us organized in a way. I mean, I think this gets back to your notion of federalism and fragmentation. It's extremely hard to organize, you know, without an incredibly centralized power. Um, yes. Any kind of response that could at least make a nation a leader in how one eradicates or, you know, identifies, isolates and eradicates disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also, I mean, I would say that part of the problem that we've had though, is that we haven't planned very well. So it's true that we, I mean, it's also harder to organize a country of 330 million that is democratic and has high, you know, ability to move about than a much smaller country or a country that is very centralized and doesn't let people move about or tries to prevent Or is an island. Rate. Yeah, that too. Um, but, but, but there were things, the thing is when somebody, I think it was Trump said, nobody had ever thought about anything like this. Well, this just isn't true. There are many, many scholars who have thought very carefully about exactly something like this. Not right. this, of course, not COVID-19 in particular, the novel coronavirus of 2019, but this whole issue. And we've had other warning signs, like I mentioned earlier, like MERS and SARS and H1N1 and so on. And so one of the things that does trouble me, and I don't know if this has always been part of our national character or if it's just become part of our national character, but I see that in general, we don't really want to plan much. And you can see this not only in in this, where clearly a lot of the problem that we have was that we hadn't planned well. And when there were plans, often people removed those plans saying, oh, that's silly, you know. Um, but I mean, look at our freeways, look at our bridges, look at our, <laughs> you know, much I mean, it's playing a short game than a long game. That's I think right. we're playing short That's game economics. Right. I think we're not playing long game economics. Um, and I wouldn't go any further than that because I'm not an economist. But, but we, but we, it's not just a lack of planning. It's it's an unwillingness to to make certain sacrifices now or make hard decisions now that people will not see the immediate response. You know, the the immediate effect of. Right. That's hard, and you know you can't. You know that does not make politicians popular. Right. You know, that, that kind of long game thinking is encouraged for those of us that stay inside the four walls of a university. What, what you're talking about, Lorianne, is exactly what 
I hope that Heather had been referring to that post World War II that we had these these some kind of philosophical changes. I hope that this is one that comes out of post COVID or with co- living with COVID, whatever we call it, uh, that our long game becomes more of a concern and, 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 it, and it permeates through yes. all of the decisions that we make is not that we, we kind of return to the balancing of both short and long-term uh, ideas about what makes us uh, live whole lives and, and not just the immediate, what gets someone elected or the immediate, uh, the, 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 the next greatest thing or the, or the most exciting thing. I want to ask each of you what you hope what might be a shift in our allostasis or our new normal uh, after we've had this conversation that you think would be uh, a real a real boost and boon and uh, maybe even working with the best that we've got here uh, to move forward? Well, it's interesting because, of course, my, my primary area is environmental, but what I honestly really hope that comes out of this is a, a better and more rational social safety net. Um, even if we, even if we can't get people behind that for adults, which is a clearly a big cultural problem in America, couldn't we get people behind it for children? Um, and so if we had what I would think of as a much more rational system of health and food and sort of these really basics of life, that's what I would hope that we could get out of this. There are a lot of other things I hope too, but I would, I guess if I had to only pick one, that's actually the one I would pick. Oh, here, here, because it it, it actually covers a lot of ground. I'd like to see some kind of, this is, I'll I'll be, I'll I'll be more airy-dairy here. I'd like to see a generation of idealists grow out of this. And if that means notions of national service or ways in which, I mean, so that's not just chasing after the almighty dollar, a a shift in what we think is actually important in the world and what's worth kind of working toward. Um, And I, that's just, you know, it, I know it sounds ridiculously abstract, but, but this is what crises in the past have done. Um, They've, they've made for, ideological shifts. And I actually think that the two things that we've just said, Heather, you know, that they go together. And Andy, now you have to add yours. Just because you asked the question doesn't mean you get to avoid it. <laughs> oh, I know. I started off by telling you what it was. I think the long-term planning is, is, is what I want. Um, okay. But, but if, if there were, if you're going to give me another one, um, Please. My, I, I, I want people to become more engaged in being informed uh, so that this wasn't, it's, that we get out of our cycle of clicking on news that reinforces our preconceived notion, but we're capable of, of going back and understanding how to make and weigh evidence and, and how to make uh, informed decisions uh, with, without having it to be based solely on a gut instinct. We have just built the most perfect world, you guys. And I think that's the meaning of policy. Um, and it's in its broadest and happiest sense. Um, Heather, we should let you go. You have been a magnificent guest and have been just educated us uh, beyond even our highest expectations of you, which were so high to start with. Thank you for being with us. (laughs) Well, thank thank you you both very much. I've really enjoyed it. And I love the uh, fact that we've ranged over things from, you know, 17th century up till the future and brought in all different disciplines. I think that's a, 
that's certainly one of the better ways that we can understand and make the world better. That's what we're oh, about is a transdisciplinary conversation. And you were Thank you uh, so much. You, you were you were wonderful as as a guest. We really appreciated having you. Thank you. Well, you're welcome and thank you. Oh, it's the sign off time, Andy. I hate this moment. I want to leave with a challenge again. Well, one of the challenges was you're going to give me a title. <laughs> No, that's my challenge, not for everybody listening. Um, okay. I want people to, to, to make their own task force in their head of what would be one to three things that our new normal, our allostasis uh, after COVID that they really wish for. Um, and what can we do? Now, that is better? a great challenge. And I want people to send it in. I have a feeling that we do not, that our inbox is not bustling with responses yet. And that seems no. to me we could take them all and we could actually try to figure out how to enact them. And we could get Heather to help us. Um, it's, a, right. it's a marvelous challenge. Everybody take that. Well, you know, including Andy, who also has to actually figure out um, a way for me to introduce myself next week. That is so scary that I might actually not be able to rise to the challenge. <laughs> um, you should send those and maybe suggestions for me to give to Laurieann at transdisciplinary.studies at cgu.edu. With that... Thank you for joining us this week on Share a Gear, where we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation. Bye.